0: are trained mostly as generalists. Those who attend journalism schools or programs learn how to tell stories about a wide array of subjects and are expected to pick up subject expertise while on the job. Some expertise is easier to come by than others. Figuring out the ins and outs of p-values and standard deviation, for example, can be tricky. The site Stats.org is designed to help journalists navigate the turbulent waters of statistical reasoning and is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami statistics department. Richard Campbell, chair of media, journalism, and film, is away today. Today's guest is Rebecca Golden. Golden is a professor of mathematical sciences at George Mason University and the director of stats.org. Her work with the site has been featured in a number of media outlets, and Golden's received several grants from the National Science Foundation for her academic research as well as for her work with stats.org. Thanks for being here today, Rebecca. Thank you for inviting me. Just to get things started, could you talk a little bit about how you got started with stats.org?
1: Uh, Yeah, so actually stats has had quite an evolution over the years and we started uh, I don't know, probably more than 10 years and less than 15 years ago, so a long time ago. And we were something of a gotcha organization looking at how uh, reports were being crafted and then reported in the media and often noticing how things were done wrong. But it, it didn't take us long to realize that actually we weren't having the kind of impact that we really wanted if all we did was criticize rather than kind of getting involved in the creation of uh media information. And so uh, we kind of shifted our focus over the years. And we now work much more on the level of education and communication and trying to get journalists to, to uh, feel their get their questions answered before they write their stories, to really dig into uh, the statistical part and the quantitative part of their work and to be a real resource for them in multiple ways. So um, that's kind of how I got involved. Originally, I I, could, I think I really wanted something more than just doing mathematical research. So I had the opportunity, and I really jumped at it. And it's been absolutely a blast.
2: Well, it's it's very cool stuff. So so what's been the hardest statistical concept to convey? I mean, what's what's kind of the most the most frequent question that you get?
1: Okay, so those are two different things. Uh, I, I would say if, if you ask me the hardest question I've ever fielded, I think all of your listeners will just turn off the show right away <laughs> because they can be really hard. I mean, sometimes there are journalists who want to really dig in deep to uh, the statistical methods of a paper to try to understand if they're appropriate, if they're the right methods. Other times they want to say, hey, can you explain to me what a p-value is? And that conversation is usually about 45 minutes um, just (laughs) to say what it is. So there are... Topics in statistics that have a kind of veneer of being accessible, and we can just sort of say something really quickly, and we'll all understand. And as a matter of reality, often it's very challenging to get those ideas across. Um, so I hope you don't put me on the spot and make you make me explain <laughs> right now what it is. But but that's probably the hardest concept that's come up with frequency mm-hmm. is what's okay. a p-value.
2: Hmm. Well, well, certainly the fact that the ASAs had two conferences related to it su- suggest that it's not, a, it's not a trivial topic to, to understand and, and to communicate.
1: That's right. And interestingly, it's also one of these topics that there's reason to really want to communicate because it's often used as some kind of benchmark for scientific validity, much to the dismay of statisticians. <laughs> so I think that there's a reason behind that when you're looking at statistical studies that you want to understand the statistical language. Um, And one of the things I really emphasize with journalists is the difference between English language and statistical Uh, language. They can often differ in significant ways. You mentioned that Stats.org started kind
0: of as this gotcha space a little bit and then shifted. And I was wondering... Did that shift um, impact um, how receptive journalists were to the work that you were doing because I would imagine having worked as a journalist, having you know someone put me on the spot for reporting maybe that I didn't communicate very well would probably make me very defensive. so I just wonder as you've sort of changed that focus of the of the organization if you've if journalists have sort of come on board maybe a bit more. Ah
1: absolutely I, I think that there's a huge difference between finding what somebody did wrong and 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 being available to talk to them beforehand just in term it, it's absolutely just human nature right that nobody likes to be told they did something wrong if you were told you did something wrong you would never then go back to that person to get some support the next time around so we weren't we were we were totally ineffective in actually talking with journalists maybe we were effective at communicating the ideas and ideas different way. But I think that um, what's happened since we've turned towards talking to journalists beforehand, towards just general education, general offering of support, sometimes journalists have a specific story in mind and they want to ask a question and sometimes they want to attend a workshop and kind of get some more general principles under their belts. And what what we found is that there's enormous enthusiasm. In fact, I, I think that Almost every journalist I've ever talked to has said that they wish they would have, they had more um, comfort with numbers and Mm -hmm. things quantitative. And in fact, I don't think that's restricted to journalists. um, I feel, I wish I understood more about statistics. I think many statisticians feel they could grow as statisticians. And I think people who have, no communication background nor quantitative background wish they had more quantitative background. So it's kind of this common thing. You wish you understood the numbers and uh, statisticians um, feel that as well, even as they spend their lives trying to understand it. But journalists are super, super enthusiastic about it.
2: That's neat. You mentioned earlier that the the challenge of trying to differentiate between the English language Mm -hmm. and statistical language. Can you give some examples that you use when you're talking to journalists about that?
1: Yeah, there's great, great fun with these. Um, So the biggest one, actually, I think that is most common is exactly the one that you guys hit on earlier when we talked about p-values. And there's this concept called statistical significance that's related to p-values. And the idea is that if you have a very, if your data, the data that you collected in doing some study are pretty unlikely to occur under some circumstance that there's nothing to conclude essentially. If that seems pretty unlikely, so your data are unexpected in some way, you have a low p value and then you say that you have reached statistical significance mm-hmm. and this is kind of this benchmark people will publish saying this result was statistically significant and the reality is that there's very little connection between statistical significance and what we mean in english by the word significance so Usually by significant, we mean something is important, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. impactful, it's gonna change the world somehow, or at least in, in a small way, it's meaningful. It usually means in our minds that it's what's called clinically significant, that, that there's some outcome that's gonna change due to that work. Um, but statistical significance doesn't mean that at all. And so when people talk about significance, it's it's kind of natural to think, oh, okay, this is really important, I better pay attention. Um, but that's, that's not actually what's meant by it. And uh, I think that leads to a lot of confusion.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, the work of Stats.org. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me today is my University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. And our special guest is Stats.org Director Rebecca Golden. Um, you, so you mentioned this issue of statistical significance being something that comes up again. Uh, and then your work to try to sort of demystify that for journalists and sort of help them understand um, the difference between statistical significance and significance, and I'm wondering for you, what do you see? What is maybe the most frustrating thing you mistake you see journalists making um, over and over again in reporting, and, and and how do you? What do you think they can do to sort of um, correct that?
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that talking about statistical significance is such a big problem in journalism because most people. Run scared of that term, <laughs> and I think they're much more likely to talk about uh, the results of a study that suggests that there's something causal going on when there's really just a correlation. Yeah, and yeah. that's the biggest mistake I see all the time: that someone has established a relationship between two things, uh, that the and, and and someone else interprets it to be. That that one of these two things is causing the other one. There's kind of a, a standard um, kind of funny example of this where where you say, hey, you know, the, the your height is often correlated to your reading skills when you're young, and that of course is because people are growing at the same time mm-hmm. that they're learning to read, but that doesn't mean that getting taller actually facilitates reading, or that reading helps you grow taller, right? So that's a perfect example of something that's really a correlation, but not something that's causal. But when we get into the world of scientific studies, which are pretty complicated, and the design is kind of confusing, and people are trying to establish something that's going on behind the scenes, it's very easy to quickly fall into a trap of believing that you've proved that something uh, is it has a causal relationship, meaning that one thing that you've measured causes something else that you've measured?
2: Do, do you think that, that journalists are are more uh, suspicious of the single study result now? That they're they're mm. they're saying that they're not going to let just a single study just make them, you know, crow from the rooftops. There's there's this phenomena that's occurring, or do you think that it's going to take it's taking more than just that to to register for folks?
1: That's a that's a great question. Um, I think that maybe there you want to make the distinction between what individual journalists think and what their editors think, and um, you know, Rosemary, you may also want to speak to how that process goes. But a lot of times, these journalists might have that point of view, but they're on a deadline with a tight time frame, and their their editor really wants something flashy and exciting to put on the screen and get people to click. So. I think they're often constrained and not really provided with the resources either time-wise or um, just logistically to get hold of other studies to try to put something into context. Um, I think. Some journalists will get quotes to, from experts to try to put any new study into context of uh, what other people have already found. Um, so so I think that journalists, yes, are getting that very much, but I'm not sure that that's really impacting how we read the news, how what we actually see when it comes out.
0: Yeah, I would say that's, uh, that's a really nice description of sort of how the news process works, because often you are going in... Uh, and the editor has a particular kind of expectation, uh, and usually the the question is, "What's new here?" And if you can't talk about what's new, uh, really quickly, then the story gets, you know, spiked a lot of the time. So I think it's a, a pressure. How do you help journalists navigate that? If 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 it's something, I mean, it sounds like you understand that process well, right? The idea that. Um, that you need to get something out that's flashy, that's new. Um, are there things that you're doing at Stats.org to help journalists better contextualize the the reporting on on maybe single shot
1: studies? Yeah, that's that's hard. I, I think that the, the thing that we do that I that perhaps helps them with that is that we respond to them very quickly so Mm -hmm. if someone reaches out to us and says i want to know what you think about this study a lot of times i'll respond to them and say but you should be aware that there's this literature out there and i'll kind of bring up a couple things that i found in a quick search but unless somebody really is gonna sort of dive into it i i think you're basically limited to providing them the expertise for a particular study that they're looking at Um, i do i do actually Talk to them a lot about reading the contextual information that an author of a new study is generally obliged to put in. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a conclusion or an Or, an introduction, you're going to get a lot of information about that puts that scientific study into context. The introduction will usually say what are some other uh, pieces of research that led them to ask the question that they asked. And then the conclusion will often talk about caveats and reasons why you might be concerned about how that particular study was designed. Um, But aside from that, I wish we had more resources to really kind of give people the opportunity to, uh, to kind of put all of that into the context. There are organizations that are trying to get scientific expertise together rather than statistical expertise and really pull together scientists in specific fields so that a journalist could call up quickly and get that response. But mm-hmm. stats is really focusing on the statistical methods.
2: So we've, we've asked in one direction kind of what, what you're providing to the journalists. What, what have you learned from journalists? What are some insights that you might now have in terms of how you do your own business?
1: Yeah, that that's great. Um, I have learned so much. I can't even. Um, I, I'm not sure I can answer this question quickly. So, uh,
2: <laughs> well, we have time.
1: So one of the things that I've really learned from journalists is that some of the smarts involved with providing a quantitative interpretation of something that you've read are not actually numerical smarts, so to speak. So the kind of skepticism that I really want to encourage mm-hmm. in journalists it seems that that kind of skepticism isn't dependent on how much experience those journalists have had with math. Mm -hmm. So I think people within the world of math and educators and people who really teach statistics and teach quantitative reasoning in a variety of ways often think that, well, the problem with journalists and the problem with miscommunication of statistical ideas and of scientific research that uses quantitative processes or, or descriptions is that they just don't have enough math. And if only they had more math and if only they had more statistics, they would suddenly be launched into this uh, world that is much richer and more accurate and has many more shades of gray as well. But, but my experience is that actually the kind of skepticism that they really need is something that they can often develop with very little numerical Uh, strength. So even people who really struggle with the math can get much further than I ever thought Uh, by learning a little bit, and the level that they can get to intellectually is extremely high because there's a lot of work that's within journalism that has to do with your logical reasoning, with your ideas of how a study is designed, how you structure your argument, and I think that has been a real eye-opener for me, just how much we can do with just making a clear, logical process rather than having some kind of strict numerical smarts and understanding exactly what a standard deviation is and knowing what a formula for a p value is or anything that's of that nature. So I, I've actually been super, super impressed at the level of journalism that goes on in the United States and in and in Europe in some cases, but I, I think I've really been impressed by how much People can uncover without without the numerical stuff. Um, so that's one of the things I've learned uh, from journalists, and I can point out so many other ones that are really important. I, I've I've um I think I've learned to write better by talking to a lot of journalists, and I've learned to respect much more some of the aspects of the process by which people in the media interview and think about topics, how they kind of come up with their topics, how they find the experts, the level of expertise that they expect when they talk to people. Um, All of that has been very impressive.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on theworkofstats.org. Rebecca, I'm going to shift gears just uh, a little bit because I saw a video that I've not been able to watch yet. Um, uh, But the title was, uh, and it was featuring you, um, Why Math is a Great Way or the Best Way to Make Sense of the World. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to explain (laughs) why math is a good way to make sense of the world.
1: Well, okay. So I think that we are... Living in a place where we often can't have conversations, right? So there's this sort of, there are huge political disparities uh, among people that seem just darker in this period of time. And I think as we kind of um, go through our lives, we could either live in a way where we're very happy with our own ideas and we don't have to worry so much about uh, anyone else's ideas, or we can try to argue really strongly about ideas and other people say, well, I just disagree with you. And then people can sort of insult each other online as Mm -hmm. they do. But I feel like where the conversation can really occur is when you start basing what you're talking about in something really factual. Mm -hmm. So for me, math and statistics really has a sense in which we can actually talk about what, uh, what we mean, we can agree on something factual, and that agreement can be part of how we can have a conversation. So if you want to talk about immigration, and maybe you and I don't agree about how immigration law should be structured, but my, maybe we could agree on what the um, rates of Uh, poverty are amongst immigrants in the United States as opposed to the rates in the general population. Maybe we could agree about uh, rates of crime in immigrant populations versus outside of immigrant populations so that we could at least have a conversation that isn't charged with incorrect information that doesn't really get us anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, We can talk about ways in which economic models depend on uh, certain kinds of information about um, immigrant communities or Immigrants who are working and how much they're Contributing to the economy so if We can agree on something factual That's often numerical because it's Aggregated information rather than I know someone who did this right mm-hmm. It's not like I know someone but rather here's A story that that describes Everyone together So all, putting all Of the information together in some aggregate Way then we can move away From something that's just a, a Huge bias into a, into something That's I think a more real conversation so for for me, that's a very powerful force in how I think. And I, I hope that other people can kind of access that.
0: <laughs> so Richard so. often, when we have guests, asks them about the current environment and the sort of circulation of fake news. Um, and, and you know, usually asks them if it's harder to, to deal with factual information and have discussions about facts. And so you're talking about this idea of rooting conversations in um facts, while also encouraging, you know, skepticism and, and making people, um, you know, approach data and approach information with a more skeptical eye. Do you find, given sort of the plethora and the explosion of fake news and misinformation in circulation, that it's harder to sort of get people to buy into those two things, sort of hanging on to the facticity of things and then, you know, approaching things skeptically?
1: Well, that's a that's a good question to try to make some kind of comparison between now and before now. <laughs> um, if um, you know, I guess my take on a lot of these things regarding fake news is that the people who are most vulnerable to it are consuming actually very little news. Mm-hmm. So you have a kind of a, a storyline say you might have a storyline about uh, vaccination that uh, you really believe that vaccination causes autism and you go on websites that say this and you read that kind of stuff, but you're really not talking to someone who thinks about this differently. And I think that there are many people who are very much in their bubble. And unfortunately, I'm not accessing those people. And Mm -hmm. I think that we do have a problem with trying to get across those Uh, built-in barriers from how we now consume news that we can kind of look at the stuff that we already believe in and not uh, try to stretch our brains to something uh, that's outside of our comfort zone. So there are people who really aren't engaged in the conversation. And from that point of view, I think it's really difficult. But I also think a lot of people are consuming news that goes beyond just their bubble. And they're looking for understanding why something is fake and why something isn't fake um and so from this point of view the opening is really there i think no matter what there's always going to be people who are just not open to a conversation and Mm -hmm. and in some level i think well okay maybe that's a lost cause so i'm not really worrying about communicating with people who aren't interested Um, and so from from the point of view if you ask like I mean, maybe you should also answer what your experience is. Do you feel like people can only consume news in some kind of narrow way or whether they're able to change their minds ever based on information?
0: Uh, I think research Mm -hmm. has shown that uh, media and communication have a really hard time changing people's behavior. It can change attitudes and opinions, but that's sort of with an onslaught of the information. Uh, One story that challenges someone's worldview isn't gonna make much difference, but maybe a sort of cascade of reporting can. Um,
1: Right, yeah, that's a a great way to view it. So there are these huge cultural shifts that we've really seen that I think media have been very much part of. So so we think about, for example, how people view smoking now, whereas how people viewed smoking, say, 30 years ago. um, And now there's a lot more acknowledgement in anything that you read that it's actually uh, dangerous. Uh, to smoke. And that didn't used to be the case. I think it used to be people tried to be really neutral about things and not Mm -hmm. not say as much or not not imply as much. And that probably does create like serious cultural shifts.
2: So one of the things that that this conversation makes me think about is the idea of what you mentioned earlier. And that's the importance of kind of this formal structure Mm -hmm. of thinking about the world. And one aspect of that formal structure is that accommodating the idea that you're willing to believe you're wrong. If you're going to be doing anything that's statistical, there is a component that says I have competing, there's there's competing states of nature, and I might be wrong about what I believe, and evidence might lead me to reject what I believe. And that's that's a formal framing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And what's interesting in statistics is that, like, not just that evidence could be misleading, but that sometimes you just can't get the evidence that you really yeah. want, and that's yeah. another part of it, right? So so I guess, you know, as a, as a working statistician, John, like you, you're always in that in kind of down in the weeds with what that really means what you can do, what can you really do with your data and what you can't do. So a lot of times we want answers to questions that are simply not provided by our data. So we take our data and we say, hey, well, we can't answer the question we really want, but we can take this data and answer something slightly different. <laughs> and, and then we answer those slightly different questions, and that's uh, the best that we can do in the framework that is statistics.
2: Well, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> hey, <nice. laughs> I, I have just a, just a follow-up question, just about the, the, the workflow of stats.org. Could you tell us yeah. kind of what, what happens, you know, give us an example of, the, of a question that you may have entertained. What, what, what does that trigger when you're contacted by, by a journalist? What's processed and then what do you return?
1: Right. Oh, yeah, that's great. So that varies wildly. And um, I have a number of journalists who will just reach out to me directly. And then we have a website, which is stats.org, where you can go in and uh, submit a question as a journalist. And those questions uh, automatically trigger an email to me and my colleague, so if I'm really busy, he'll know that and he'll kind of send it off to yet another statistician who can actually respond to it. We have a um, a board of statisticians, so a group of statisticians who have all volunteered to be working with journalists directly if needed. Um, when I receive an email from someone who is working on something, I will first read it as carefully as I can to try to understand what's needed. And a lot of times someone will say something like, Hey, I'm working on this story, and uh, this is the topic, but I'm wondering if you can help me. And all I know is the topic, and they that they want help. <laughs> so in that case, my first response is as soon as I get it, to write back to the journalist and say, can you explain more what you're actually trying to do? What are you trying to write about? What are the questions that you have? And if they have a copy of the study, if they can share it with me, otherwise I can I can try to find it through a library. Or if they're just asking a more general question, perhaps it's not even based on a study. So there's that first sort of information exchange that allows somebody to say, okay, it's a human being who's reading your, your email. <laughs> because of course, they submit to some kind of, you know, uh, innocuous looking website, and mm-hmm. they don't necessarily... You know, they're not saying, dear Rebecca, they're just writing it. <laughs> so um, so we kind of established this this thing. If I can answer the question, which is usually the case, then, then I'll take the time to answer it. So that might be uh, that I spend a couple hours to read a research paper that they're interested in some question about, and then I'll call them and we'll walk through some aspect that they're interested in. Or it could be that they want me to check a calculation. I've had journalists write in to say, I want to say that this is such and such percentage did i do the calculation right so (laughs) let's just compute percentage okay um or i've had things that are way 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 more complicated like trying to understand what the authors are saying in a in a really complicated uh study um and a lot of times they have their own data and that's actually really new and really fun and i don't know rosemary if you've also found that you know, people are using data much, much more, but they, they really need to analyze it, and they don't know how to analyze it, or they don't know what they could analyze and what should they do or what additional questions they might ask or following up about their data. So uh, sometimes I'll go through somebody's Excel chart with them, kind of we will we'll be on the phone for a couple hours and we will actually sort through some of their data. Um, and sometimes I'll whip something up uh, in an Excel chart with their data and send it back to them and walk them through what I was doing with it. Um, Common questions include things like uh, how do I take the average in in this situation? So they're interested in an average but they're not really sure how to take the average because they might have a bunch of numbers. Each number is an average itself and they're trying to figure out Uh how they do what's called a weighted average or other times they have some data and they really just don't know what would be useful descriptions of that data. So there are a variety of things from what I would call elementary school math all the way through what is probably taught in a graduate statistics course. Um, and those questions are, they can be vastly different from day to day or from week to week. Yeah.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Rebecca Golden, director of Stats.org, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program. Send your email to Stories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.